Now, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. I'd ask that you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Over the past several weeks, we have seen Paul traveling around Greece and carrying the gospel wherever he goes. His plan, remember, was originally to go up into Asia, but instead he was rerouted by the Holy Spirit to travel into Europe. And everywhere that the message of the cross has gone so far on this journey, there has been a visceral response from some of the people in the public. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were publicly beaten with the authority of the magistrates who were standing and watching the crowds do this. And then they were imprisoned overnight, and after being released, they went on their way to Thessalonica. And in that city, Thessalonica was one of the most populous cities in the entire Roman Empire, and in that city, the Jewish community had such a violent outburst against Paul and Silas that they were forced to leave and travel to Berea. And then in Berea, it says that the Jews there were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the message of Jesus with careful investigation, followed by eager anticipation. However, Paul's time there was cut woefully short because the angry Jewish community from Thessalonica followed him all the way to Berea to continue to attack him. They were searching for him, likely in hopes of capturing and killing him. Dr. Luke explains it this way in verses 13 through 16. He says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So now Paul is in Athens, and he's now alone. And nobody would have batted an eye if he were to say to himself, you know, this is a good time for vacation. Let me just take a little bit of a break here. But Paul does not take respite. Instead, he throws himself headlong into the work of preaching the gospel. And it's here in Athens that we actually hear one of the most powerful sermons ever recorded in the entire Bible. Please follow along with me starting in verse 16. This is God's powerful, always effective, life-changing word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless us today with understanding and with hearts that seek to apply this Scripture to our lives. We acknowledge, God, that without you we are incapable of transformation, and apart from you we can do nothing, as Jesus said. But Lord, I pray that today, through your Spirit, you would cause us to have great awareness of your Word and what it means, and great desire and capability of carrying it out. In particular, Lord, as this is so specifically about preaching the gospel faithfully to our community and in in the face of our culture, I pray, God, that you would help us to be faithful missionaries to our neighborhood, to our backyard, to Levittown, to Nassau County, that we might see many turn to Christ and be saved. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, For those who are new to the church or who don't know my family well yet, Our third child is named Athanasius, but we call him Athens for short. And earlier this year, uh, our family found ourselves in Athens, Georgia, uh, for a few hours, and Athens said, I finally made it. He was so excited to be able to go to a town with his own namesake. So while we were there, we took the opportunity for a couple of photos. This is one of them. Uh, This is actually uh, one of my favorites. You like that one, buddy? He said, my life has been fulfilled. (laughs) You can go to class now, buddy. Athens, I love you. (laughs) Now, although it doesn't seem like it, Paul's, this was not Paul's original plan, but he has now landed in the city of Athens. (laughs) He's excited. (laughs) In the United States, New York has always been a very significant city. Culturally, it's always been a very important place for our country. But for the last 40 years at least, Los Angeles has actually been the city responsible for setting the cultural tone of our nation. It has done this from the bottom up, if I can put it that way, through the common forms such as television and movies. Athens was much more like Boston, really, than it was like Los Angeles. It also set the tone for the culture of the empire, but it did it through the top down by way of higher education. Athens was chiefly responsible for setting the culture of how the Roman Empire thought and how they understood life and religion and just about everything else. Most of the sermons that we find in the Scripture are presented to people who actually shared a basic belief structure with the speaker. Jesus' sermons were preached to the Jews who would have believed in the existence of God and the covenantal love that he has for his people. Stephen preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and he does so to the Sanhedrin, ones who believed in the entire Old Covenant. Most of Paul's sermons are recorded for us, and his addresses, they're made to the Jewish community. But here in Acts chapter 17, we find Paul speaking to the intellectual elites of the pagan world. These Areopagites are, in in many ways, much more similar to what we see in our world around us today. They are, in in this sense, Uh, much more similar to our culture and our worldview. We live in an increasingly theologically amorphous, philosophically materialistic, and ethically situational society that does not tolerate biblical truth. One of our deepest desires as a church is to honor God by making disciples of those in our surrounding neighborhoods. That's something we would love to do. If the Lord has called us to be fishers of men, then Levittown and Nassau County, that's our pond. That's where we cast our nets. But how do we do that? Particularly when our message has become so foreign to our culture and the perception that people have of the gospel is so negative. How do we proclaim good news to people who are increasingly ignorant of what the Bible claims, even though they are more likely to say they know exactly what the Bible claims? This passage is so dense, it's so helpful, that we're actually going to spend time on it, not just this week, but we'll cover it next week as well. 
This week, we're going to examine the broad strokes of Paul's response to the culture of Athens, and next Sunday, we're going to drill down in a detailed analysis of how Paul explained the gospel to them. As we walk through this passage together, I want to share with you seven missiological imperatives that we learn from Paul's approach to the Athenians. That all only means this. I want to share with you seven things that we can apply, principles that we should be putting in place about how to reach our community. These seven principles are brought to you today by the letter C, the best letter of the alphabet. Point number one, be culturally provoked. Point number two, be countercultural. Point number three, be conspicuous. Point number four, be conditioned. Point number five, be confident. Point number six, be comfortable with rejection. Or if you really want the double alliteration, be comfortable with cancellation. And number seven, be cross-centered. We start with our first principle of the day, be culturally provoked. In verse 16, we read, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The ancient Roman historian Petronius said of the city of Athens that it was, quote, easier to find a god here than a man. That's impressive, the number of idols that they had. The Greek historian Xenophon said that the city had so many temples and so many idols that the entire city should, quote, be considered one giant altar to the gods. That's the city of Athens. But here's the question. Don't you think Paul knew that before he got there? That is what they were famous for. Everybody in the empire knew that this was their style. Do you think Paul was surprised by the fact that there were temples on every corner and idols in every window? Well, the answer is simple. Of course he knew what to expect. Of course he was not surprised. Even so, Dr. Luke informs us that this saturation of idolatry deeply troubled Paul. In the ESV, it uses the word words provoked in his spirit. Other translations say that he was troubled or distressed or stirred up or disturbed. The word here for provoke in Greek is paroxuno, which originally meant to be cut with something really sharp. Strong's concordance gives it a range of meaning, including arousing to anger or stirring up irritation or provoking someone's deep frustration. That's how Paul responded to this massive level of idolatry. This is a strong word that shows how uncomfortable he felt with the culture of Athens. Our first point is significant. Be culturally provoked. Don't be comfortable with sin that is pervasive within your society. Don't get used to it. It's right for you to feel that the direction of our country and our culture is wrong. It is a good thing to be repulsed by the degradation of morality and the normalization of wickedness that we see around us. Paul knew to expect an abundance of idols in Athens. Even so, he was deeply troubled by them. Have you become desensitized to the wickedness of our culture? Have you become used to all of the sinful things around you? I will use the term idolatry, for certainly that's what it is around us. When someone tells a perverted joke at your job, do you laugh just like everybody else? Many people in our community cannot seem to speak a single sentence without profanity. Does your vocabulary sound just like theirs? Is your soul provoked by the proliferation of sexually explicit imagery in movies and television? Do you tolerate those things on your screen? Does it bother you when that show that you enjoy watching with your family introduces a new transgender character? Or has that now become normal to you? If you are not troubled by your culture, if it doesn't bother you, if it does not provoke you in any way, it's possible that you have not been truly saved because the Holy Spirit rejects such things. As we grow in Christ, we grow in holiness. And part of that means we grow in our hatred of sin. There is a common phrase that we are to be in the world but not of the world. Although that's not a direct quote from the Bible, it is a summary of much of what we find in the book of 1 John. But I want you to notice that not only Paul's response to not only his response to being provoked in his spirit, when the culture bothered him, I want you to see 
not just that he was provoked, but how he responded to it. What did he do? He preached the gospel. He did that because there's another piece to that old saying that should be included, that we are to be in the world, not of the world, but for the world. Paul's response to the people of Athens was a heart-wrenching revulsion. He was provoked. He was angered. He was bitterly frustrated. He was disgusted by their rampant idolatry. We are likewise surrounded by the idolatry of millions of New Yorkers who worship themselves and worship their jobs and their retirement plans and their cars and their money and their reputations and 30,000 other idols a day. We should be provoked by that. We should be. But Paul did not respond to their wickedness in anger towards them. Instead, he responded with love towards them. Christians who really love someone, who truly love another individual who is not a believer and want what's best for them, will preach the gospel to them. Instead of responding with a heart that says, Athens, you sicken me. Paul responded with a heart that said, Athens, I love you. You should be disturbed by our culture. It should provoke you. But the proper response to that provocation is gospel proclamation. Principle number two, be countercultural. In verses 17 through 18, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul began preaching the gospel in the same place that he always did, at the synagogue. But he would also spend his time in the city market. Now, the city market of the ancient world is a hard thing for us to understand as modern-day Americans. There really is nothing like this in our culture or society today. This was the closest thing that they would have had to Times Square in their culture. It was the most heavy foot traffic that you could find anywhere in the city. And being that this was downtown Athens, Greece. This was the cultural capital of their society. This was one of the chief marketplaces in the entire world at this time. So this was a prime location for Paul to go and begin proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And he would have happily spoken to anybody, but he was approached by two diametrically opposed philosophical parties, the Stoics and the Epicureans. These two philosophies represented two of the three most dominant strains of thought in those days. The cynics are not there. That should not surprise you too much because the cynics kind of rejected society. They were the ones that decided that nature was good and everything that was not nature was bad, so they basically wouldn't even shower, and so they weren't often around for things such as this. But here we see the Stoics and the Epicureans. Stoicism was a very old philosophy at this point. It was a mainstay of the history of philosophy in their culture. Uh, the, Stoics, uh, the Stoicism had been started by Zeno about 350 years earlier, and the main concept of Stoicism is a focus on virtue and self-control and minimalist living. And they typically rejected worldly goods and believed that life was all about doing good and being good. According to them, your life could be measured in the legacy of good deeds that you performed that people remembered at your funeral. Epicureans, on the other hand, were kind of the opposite side of that scale. They pursued pleasure as the ultimate purpose in life, and not necessarily just debaucherous pleasure. I think sometimes they're inappropriately viewed as being completely evil in their pursuit of, of desires of good. But don't think about it just in terms of pursuing wicked pleasure. Think about this more like the concept of the American dream. They just wanted to have a life that was better than their parents. And they wanted to have one where they could view their bank account and not be afraid of what they find there. They believed that your ultimate joy was to eat, drink, and be merry. And it was their perspective that your life could be measured by three metrics. Were you free from pain? Were you free from fear? And were you free from want? That's how you know if your life is good. Now, although these two systems of philosophy were diametrically opposed in some ways, they actually both held to a few particular similarities. For example, neither one of them believed in an afterlife. For both of them, this is it. You only live once, so the Stoics said just do good things and be good with a minimal life. 
And on the other side of the token, you had the Epicureans who said, this is all you get, so live it up now. Get as much as you can, because this is the only time you're going to go around. There's nothing after. Neither of them believe that you're going to be judged by God for your actions, only judged by yourself and your society. Neither of them thought that there was any consequence to your actions beyond how you made people feel. And both of these systems were seeking to produce a good life for people, for themselves particularly, apart from divine influence in any way. If you read their philosophy, they're not looking at their false gods for instruction. They're looking to the earth itself for instruction. These philosophies have trickled down over time, and they've actually sprinkled in through the melting pot of cultures into our very own Long Island society. And as I was talking about the Stoics and, and the Epicureans, there are probably people in your own life that you said to yourself, yeah, that sounds about right. I see that in my own backyard. Well, the gospel is countercultural. Christians should never try to make ourselves weird. We should not try to make ourselves stand out by doing outlandish or bizarre things. If we believe the gospel, if we simply believe the truth of the scripture and we speak about it, then we necessarily and automatically will stand out. In our modern society, just think about this for a moment, it is countercultural to say that men did not come from monkeys. It is countercultural to say that truth is unchanging. It is countercultural in our world today to say that men and women can be discerned by biological traits. All you have to do to be countercultural is just be biblical. This necessarily means that you have to study the truth, however. It means that you have to know what the Bible says. If you want to be truly countercultural in a biblical way, you have to understand what the scripture actually teaches. Now, Paul was probably uniquely qualified amongst the first century missionaries to carry on dialogues with these people about their specific philosophical perspectives because he was somebody who was trained in philosophy. He was somebody who was a brilliant scholar before coming to Christ. But Luke doesn't say that he carried on a long time about those things. Rather, all Luke says about Paul's message in the marketplace is this. He was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. That was his focus, and that is something you and I can do as well. Many of us have been taught that in polite society, we're not supposed to speak about politics or religion. Well, apparently, Paul did not get that memo. He instead shows us that the way that we are to confront our culture is with the good news of Jesus Christ. Our third principle for the day is be conspicuous. In verse 19, it says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, it says, All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We're going to talk a lot about this next week, but I want to focus on one aspect of this from Paul's approach today, and that is that he was conspicuous. The Athenians were very different than most Americans in the sense that they were deep thinkers. <laughs> they would read every scholarly book that they could find. They would do nothing except for think about the very nature of life, and they were contemplative as a society. There's a lot of words that we could use to describe American culture or Long Island culture or Nassau County culture or Levittown culture, and in the top 100, I would not put the word contemplative. That's not what we are like. In that way, we are the opposite side of the scale from our modern world that is practically allergic to deep thought. However, don't think that they were completely unlike us. They wanted to hear something new. We love to hear something new. That is very much part of our culture. We love it in the form of entertainment. We love it in the form of YouTube and that new music that comes out and movies that come out. And we love it in the form of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever other app we can scroll through day after day after day. We love something new to come into our ears and eyes. We love to have stories. Stories presented to us in new ways, interesting concepts. We love it. People have always loved this. It's important for us to know that in verse 19, it tells us that the Stoics and the Epicureans that were in the marketplace with Paul, it says they took him away. 
and brought him to the Areopagus, which is what translates into Mars Hill. Now, Mars Hill is possibly a uh, way to describe a location, a physical location, but it's more likely the way they were speaking about a particular group of people. This was basically kind of like a mashup of our Supreme Court and a group of academic deans from Ivy League colleges. It was their job, the group of Mars Hill. Think about this, Mars, the god of war. This is like the war room of the thought culture of their day. These people were the gatekeepers of information. They were the most influential scholars in the world. And that day, Paul was led to them in order to present the gospel. He was given an introduction. Listen to this guy. Now, next week, we're going to cover this section in a lot of detail. So for now, I'm not going to get real deep on what he says to them. What I want you to notice is that Paul was given an audience because he was already preaching the gospel. He didn't start by marching up to these philosophers and demanding an audience with them. He started with whoever would listen to him. He would have been comfortable speaking to anyone, Stoic, Epicurean, anyone else in the marketplace. He didn't hide the light under a bushel until what he perceived to be an opportune time for someone that he perceived to have power to pass by. He just started talking. I once had a student in my youth group, this was about a decade ago, he told me that he was so afraid, he was a new convert, he was afraid to talk about Jesus with his friends at school. He was terrified to admit publicly that he was a Christian. He was fearful of what would happen to him in his reputation and maybe even physically to his body if he acknowledged that he had become a believer in Jesus Christ. And he said, I don't know how to start doing this. How do I start being public about my relationship with the Lord? How do I tell people about Christ? And I just said, look, just start small. Just start by taking your Bible to class every class, and just put it on your Bible. That's all you got, or on your desk. That's all you got to do. Just start there and let people know, hey, I believe in this. And then step two, I said, even though they're almost always cheesy, get a Christian t-shirt. Make yourself obvious. Make yourself known. Make it known that you actually believe in Jesus Christ. And you know what? This kid, he actually did it. And you know what was amazing? That kid brought more students to our youth group than anybody else. And within a year, he was bringing people constantly to visit our youth group and who would come in and who would listen to the things of the Lord. Now, I don't know how many of them got saved or if any of them got saved, but that young man became an excellent evangelist just by starting, by making it known, this is my God. This is my Lord, Jesus Christ. He just let people know that he believed. He was conspicuous. Paul had this opportunity to speak to the most influential people in the world because he was just being very public about the fact, I don't agree with you, Epicureans. I don't agree with you, Stoics. I have a different position. I have a different faith. Now, most people in the world do not want to hear about your faith. Well, yes, they do. As soon as they have a funeral in the family, then they'll come to you and they'll ask you. As soon as they have a prayer request, then they will come to you. As soon as they feel guilty, then they will know, oh yeah, that guy down there said that there's something I can do about this. Have you positioned yourself as a person who is known to be a believer? Do the people in the cubicles around you have an awareness that when their life falls apart, they can turn to you because you claim to have the answers? Do your neighbors know that when their life is burning down, they can come to you for prayer and then stick around to hear about the hope of your salvation? Part of the reason that we as modern American Christians have done such a poor job of proclaiming the gospel is that we have functioned like chameleons and people don't even know that we're saved. In the world, they aren't even aware that we have a message of life. It's like everyone has cancer and we have the cure and we haven't even spoken up about it. Brothers and sisters, be conspicuous about your faith. Make it clear that you have truth. You have the message of life. And when people realize they need it, perhaps they will hear. Principle number three was be conspicuous. Principle number four, be conditioned. In his sermon... Paul highlights two incredibly interesting things that have been the cause of a great deal of debate. We'll, we'll talk a lot about them specifically next week, but I want to point out a couple of things about them in particular today. First, he makes a point to recognize Athenians didn't actually know everything. They 
thought they did. They claimed that they did. But even in some ways, they acknowledged their own ignorance. He says, I went around your city. I walked all over the place, and I saw an altar that you guys built to an unknown God. There's a hole in your theology. There's a missing piece of your knowledge. Your philosophy is incomplete. And I am here to tell you, I know what you don't know. It's almost like the tomb of the unknown soldier. There's, uh, just in case we're missing somebody here, we're going to put up an altar to this unknown deity. So, you know, if we worship all these other ones and then we just leave this other guy out, we don't want him to be offended at us. Sure, we'll, we'll worship there too. Paul capitalized on the fact that they knew they were missing something in order to tell them that he had knowledge where they had ignorance. And secondly, he actually quotes two of their own poets and playwrights, and we're going to talk about those quotes in their actual meaning in depth next week, but for now I just want to show you how he uses them. Paul is pointing out their inconsistency with these quotes. He took two quotes that all of his hearers would have known and revered. They would have looked up to these guys who wrote these poems as some of the greatest geniuses of their philosophy of all time. It's like talking to a modern biologist about Charles Darwin. They believe that everything he said was excellent. And he comes before them and says, actually, by the way, do you know that what you're saying here actually is completely opposite of what your own scholars had to say? They even agree with me. So he says, look, if you want to disagree with me, that's fine, but don't you know that doing so necessarily means you're rejecting your own stated beliefs, and it makes you a hypocrite. In short, Paul lovingly confronted them with both their ignorance and their hypocrisy in just a matter of minutes. And it's possible that these lines of reasoning, it's possible, I don't want to discount it, it is possible that these lines of reasoning just popped into his head under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in that moment as he was standing there in front of the people But I doubt it. Paul was a measured man. Paul was a scholarly man. Paul was one who was intentional with his thought before he walked into a conversation. My guess is that while he was standing there, in front of that altar to the unknown God, he was thinking about it and wondering to himself, how can I speak to these people about this? This is disturbing. I am provoked by this. How can I turn this into a gospel conversation? And when he read those famous poets, he likely was thinking about how they actually stumbled upon truth and said, wow, every blind squirrel finds an acorn sometime. This guy got it right. And then he was wondering to himself, most likely, how do I use this in a conversation with these Athenians? Have you ever conditioned yourself for a conversation about the gospel? Have you prepared yourself? Have you intentionally made plans for conversation? You don't have to be a genius to do that. Actually, some of the people that I have known that are the best at doing this have at at most a high school education. You don't have to be a phenomenally intellectual person to know how to to, uh, contemplate these things. You don't have to know everything about everything. You just have to look through at our culture through the lens of the gospel. Here's a, a, a good example. A good friend of mine, this was several years ago, he, he was talking with me and he talked to me about the movie The Greatest Showman. Now, this is when it was still in the movie theater. I had not seen it yet. And he, he told me I should go watch it. And he said, now, not every message in the movie is probably great. And there's some things that I don't necessarily agree with, but it has the greatest on-screen depiction of repentance I have ever seen, he said. And I said, okay, well, then I'll watch it. And you know what? He was right. About a year later, I had an opportunity. I was with him again, and I just was talking to him about that. I was like, you know, you were right. The end of that movie, that song, From Now On, where he talks about turning away from his life as it was and turning back to the right path, that is an excellent on-screen depiction of repentance. How did you come up with that? And he's like, I don't know. I was just watching it and I started thinking about it. How can I share my, uh, with these people that I'm with about the gospel? And that just popped into my head. And he said, you know what? I've actually used that in many conversations with people who love that movie and love the music from that movie. And I have used that to share the gospel a bunch of times over this past year. That is what Paul did. That's what we can do. It doesn't mean we have to, have to find ways to uh, 
mold our beliefs into our culture and try to conform what we think to, to the way the world thinks so that we can connect with them. It just means that when we live in the same culture as other people, we look at things through the lens of the gospel and then we find ways to communicate with people about that. Part of the reason that we're not prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us is that we don't think about the hope that is within us until it's too late, until we're in that conversation. Prepare, condition yourself, purpose when you are watching a movie. How can I think about this through a gospel lens? How can I have a conversation with my unsaved kids about what I'm seeing on the screen in front of me? How can I talk to my coworker about this thing that's going on in politics in a way that's actually gospel-centered? That would radically transform your conversations, would it not? We need to be conditioning ourselves to live in a world that is absolutely void of Christ. But we need to see that through the lens of the gospel so that we can communicate to them about Christ. Be conditioned. Principle number five, be confident. Yesterday I was trying to organize some things that were uh, pretty high up in my garage, and so I had this brilliant plan. I I was being lazy. I didn't want to move too far, so I just grabbed this cardboard box nearby, and I moved it into my general area, and I decided to use that as a step stool. And because I'm a little slow, it, I got on there, and it took me at least two seconds before I realized this is a bad idea, and I got down, and I replaced it with something that was a little bit more sturdy, namely a cooler. And I used that as a step stool instead. <laughs> now, I want you to notice something that Paul does in this sermon. Listen to the confidence that Paul has in his claims. Speaking to the most brilliant minds and highest level of scholars of his day, he says this, starting in the middle of verse 23. He says, What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that God, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Wow! Consider those claims. By saying these things, Paul is essentially declaring that all of the gods that they believe in are false. Because Paul says, God is the Lord of both heaven and earth. Now, they had tons of gods, 30,000 in Athens, it is estimated. They had the Olympian gods, and they also had they had natural gods. They had gods that were like every time there was a pond or a river or a tree, they would name a god after it. They had natural gods, like they would go fish and catch a big fish, and they would say, well, that fish is so large, it must be a god, and they would make a statue for it. And then they had household gods that they would worship that were representative of their ancestors. They had gods after gods after gods. And he says, by the way, there is one god that rules heaven and earth. He is the Lord, the kurios, the master. That's where we get the word Kaiser. That's where we get the word Caesar. That's where we get the word master. That's where we get the word Lord. Lord, he's ultimately in charge of everything. That's a massive claim that he makes. And he continues on and he tells them that their himself is false. For God has made the world and everything in it. That undermines everyone's creation myths, except for the Bibles. It undermines everything they believed about how they got there, their origins. Now, the Athenians, they were, they were arrogant people in a lot of ways. They were so arrogant, that, and, and they were, uh, the word racist is a modern word. I don't know that racist is the right word. They were culturally superior, so much so that they had created a myth that the Athenian people, unlike everyone else, were created in heaven by the gods and descended from heaven in order to bless everyone else with their great knowledge. And he, he undermines this in many ways in his sermon here, but this is one of them. He's like, by the way, God made you and everything else as well. And later on, he's going to say, from one man, God made all the races of the world. He undermines their understanding of themselves and their superiority. He undermines their understanding of creation. He does that all in a very short order. And then he also makes clear that because they are created beings, they are responsible to God and that their view of worship is all wrong because God is not confined by earthly temples. Hey, if you want to make a God, you put him in a little room or a little box or a little building. And then you have people go in there and worship him, and then when they leave, they don't worship him. Well, God's not like that at all. He undermines their view of theology. 
And their view of existence, he says, is all wrong because the only reason that they have life or breath or anything is that it was granted to them by an omnipotent ruler. You guys all think that you're great because of something you have done. Ha, no. All that you have is God's kind gift to you. That is a, a huge claim. And the people that are most offended by that are the people that have the most stuff or the most knowledge. They're the ones who think they've done the most for themselves. And he's like, look, you have a brain? Sure. God made that for you. Let's just take one of those claims for a moment. The one that says that God created the world and everything in it. Many people want to, who want to share the gospel with other people, they get so hung up on trying to convince them of the factual details that they actually never get around to the gospel itself. So, for example, they will study incessantly about how to argue to the minute detail of why it is that evolution is a lie and that creationism is true. Now, of course that's right. But Paul doesn't take that route. He just says the truth. He just tells them, God made you. Theologians refer to two types of defending the faith with this distinction. Some are evidentialists who seek to convince people into the kingdom using proofs and evidence and all sorts of scholarly work and say, if I can just convince the mind of this person, then they will agree with me and be saved. That's evidentialism. The other side of the coin is presuppositionalism. Those who do what Paul does here, we just present the truth by presupposing that it is true. Now, this is really important. Don't hear me incorrectly. I am not suggesting that it is wrong to study in detail creationism or any other aspect of theology for that matter. It's good, and I think it's wonderful to endeavor that for your own life and your mind. But I don't think that's the best way to preach the gospel. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells, it tells us that by faith we believe that God created the world. If people don't have faith, like, yeah, they might have an intellectual understanding, but they don't really actually believe or care in who God is or that he made the world unless they have faith. It's very important for us to see that I don't believe the best way to preach the gospel is by convincing the mind of somebody with facts and details. The main thing I want you to see here is not ultimately about presuppositionalism, which I think is right, or evidentialism, which I think is wrong. The main thing I want you to see is that Paul was confident in making these massive claims. Why was he confident? Well, yesterday I was on a cardboard box for about two seconds, and I was not confident that it would hold my overweight body, so I immediately got down. If you walk into a conversation where you desire to explain the gospel to someone, and your confidence is built upon whether you can outwit or prove or outreason or convince the person in front of you, then you are going to be limited by the extent of your own frail mind and your polemical skill. Those are no match for the hard heart of an unbeliever. You won't be able to confidently share the gospel if your confidence ultimately stands on you and on your abilities. But Paul does not do that. He stands confidently. If your confidence, like Paul's, is firmly placed on the unwavering truth of the Scripture, then you can confidently make claims without wavering. You don't have to know all the answers, but you can say and be right, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, there might be a lot of questions people have about that where you can say, well, the Bible, I'm sure, tells us enough to, to know. I'm not 100% sure, but I know that he's alive. I know that he's my king. I know that he will judge the world someday. I know these things to be true. And you don't have to prove with all these scientific evidences that you're right. If you simply believe the truth of God's word, then you can speak with confidence about the truth of God's word as you share the gospel. Principle number six, be comfortable with rejection. Most of the people that heard Paul's message rejected it. In the first audience that he had with the Stoics and the Epicureans in the marketplace, it says they called him a babbler. I like this word, actually. It's very interesting. In, in Greek, it's the word seed picker. 
And the idea is kind of like a chicken, where if you've ever watched a chicken eat, they like walk around. It's like you dump a whole bunch of food all over the place, and they eat one thing from here, and then they have to walk like 30 steps before they're like, oh, wait, here's another one, and they find another seed over here. And that's what they were calling these guys. You're a seed picker. You can't just stay in one place. It's like you have to go all over the place. You go here and get some of your ideas, and then you go here and get some of your ideas, and you go over there and get some of your ideas. That's kind of what they're calling him. Well, They call him a seed picker as a way to mock him and insult his intelligence. And then later, when they take him uh, to the Areopagus, he continues on speaking to these Areopagites in his message in verse 32 and says, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. But others said to him, We'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. Most of the time that you preach the gospel you are going to be rejected. Unfortunately, most of the time, the way that many of us determine whether or not we have been successful in sharing the gospel is whether or not somebody responds immediately with belief. That's not how you determine success. Do not measure your success of your proclamation by fruitfulness. Measure by faithfulness. You just cast the seed. That's your job. And the Lord is the one that causes it to grow. And in Athens, God did save some of them. Those seeds took and they grew. And it says that some joined and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite. One of the guys in that Supreme Court Council of Athens believed the message. And even a woman named Damaris and with others with them. Every time you share the gospel faithfully, you have succeeded. Every single time, you have succeeded. So be comfortable with rejection. Rejection is not failure. It's to be expected. Narrow is the way, and few are those who find it. So don't get discouraged. Just keep spreading the seed of the gospel. Now we come to our final principle, number seven. Be cross-centered. Now, if you are reading this text closely, if you followed with me so far, if you, if you listened very intently, then it may surprise you that I am making this statement in a sermon that Paul preached that does not include the word cross at all. You might find it strange that I am speaking here about the death of Christ when it doesn't even acknowledge the death by name. However, it is important that you remember this is not the first thing that they heard about Paul's message. When he gets to the Areopagites, they already say, you are saying strange things that we want to know more about. So he's been preaching here for two to three weeks at this point. And it seems as though they've already heard some of his message, either directly in the marketplace or it's trickled up to them. And now they've heard of what's going on. So this is not the only thing that they have heard from him. However, we do know that with certainty, whether it's just not recorded here or something they've already heard from him, they do know about the death of Christ. That is not speculation on my part. It's obvious from the text in at least two places. Let me show you. First, Remember that the Epicureans and Stoics said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, and Luke tells us that this is due to the fact that, quote, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then Paul concludes his sermon later with the Areopagites by saying, God has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. And it was when they heard of the resurrection of the dead that some of them mocked. Now, Resurrection, a little science for you, information, you can't be raised from the dead if you were not already dead. This indicates that he must have told them something about the fact that Jesus died. But that wasn't something that surprised them. You see, the, they, they had seen Roman crucifixion probably many times. That was not unusual for them. And to them, there was nothing scandalous about the idea of this man dying on a cross. Okay, what else is new? But to Jewish audience, it would have been shocking to hear that the Son of God came down to live among us. Well, not to the Greeks. They had all sorts of myths of the the gods having children and the gods coming to live among them. And it wouldn't have been surprising to them the idea that a god could die. They had all sorts of myths like that, whereas that would scandalize the mind of a Jewish listener. They heard that, and it was no big deal to them. Okay, so, yeah, we've got a lot of gods that died in one way or another. Is he going to come back like these other gods? Well, what was shocking to them was that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. That was shocking. That was disturbing to them. You see, missionaries 
in the modern world to places like India tell us how easy it is to have conversations with people in their cultures, in that place, about Jesus. In India, in particular, they have over 300 million deities. So a lot of people start listening, and they're like, well, what's the big deal about adding one other to this list? There's a lot I don't even know about. Sure, this, maybe I just don't know about this guy. But the thing that immediately turns them away is the claim that Jesus is the one God who exists in three persons. In, in a similar way, Paul's message of the gospel is being heard without strong opposition until he speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And we're going to talk more about this next week, but for now I simply want to land on this simple point. Paul was provoked in his spirit And he was disturbed by the idolatry of Athens, and his response was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, Christmas Sunday, uh, Larry Langley was over at my house, and uh, he came into a conversation. He said, you know, we've got about 10 minutes. Let's figure out how to conquer the world. That's about what you said, right, Larry? Something like that, right? Let's figure out how to conquer the world. Now, of course, I assume you were joking, uh, but I immediately began to play a game of risk in my head. You know, with the map, you've you know, got Kamchatka over here, and the secret, if you know anything about risk, the way to win is just get Australia and sit there. So I start playing risk in my head, and I'm like, all right, well, step one, if we've got 10 minutes, step one, we've got to create a hot war between India and China, figure out how to get them in opposition to one another. And I started going on about these political maneuvers about how we could take over the world. Uh, nations rise, empires fall. Revolutions and wars, well, they change the hands of earthly power all the time, but they cannot ultimately truly change the world. They cannot change society. Do you want to know how to change the world? Do you want to know how to conquer it in that sense? Preach the gospel. Paul didn't set his attention on the politics of Athens. He didn't set out to go in guns blazing. Hey, you guys have got this all wrong. Let me fix you. Let me just tear down all these temples. No, he preached the gospel, and those who had idols got rid of them if they believed in Jesus Christ. Are you sick and tired of our culture? If we had a radical transformation where people turn to Jesus Christ, then our culture would change. Our approach to changing the world is pointing them to the Savior who changes people from the inside out. He's the only one that produces genuine, lasting change through salvation in Jesus Christ. That is what we do. We preach the good news. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to be cross-centered, that you would help us to have Christ at the center of our message, that regardless of our personal opinions, our differences with those around us, our frustrations, our bitterness, the ways that we are provoked by our culture, that we would respond by going to the gospel. Help us to be countercultural in the way that we live and to be conspicuous in the way that we are clear about our faith with others and that we would be conditioned to know how to share the gospel with them. That we would be confident as we preach the good news, standing on the truth of the scripture and that we would be comfortable with rejection when people do not believe. Lord, I pray that we would be people of the book, that we would be people of the word, that we have it firmly grounded in our heart and just like Paul, that we can stand confidently upon it. Lord, I ask that today as we consider these things, that this would not be something we just consider for a moment and then walk away, but this would be something that would transform our hearts and our lives so that we will be well-equipped to communicate your message with a dying world because, Lord, we desire to make disciples of all nations. And, Lord, we pray that it would start today and it would start here with us. Please, Lord, over the course of 2023, we ask that you would bring many into our midst. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.